Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Rohr, your host, and so happy to be with you for this episode. I wanted to do another kind of broad scope where we are in the league so far, still getting into the the big stories just due to sample size issues. And a great person to talk with about that is Jared Dubin, talented freelance writer, frequent podcast host and guest. I've I've had him on this show and, and I've talked with him on other shows as well. And we go through a lot of different things in the league, the the big takeaways, and start in a different place in terms of what we might be underreacting to. And it's funny because that we recorded right before Celtics thunder which was a, a pretty awesome game and so we talked we we talked before that about the celtics and then numerous other topics including 2018 free agency so many other things this broadcast is brought to you by harry's go to harry's.com slash real gm and you can get a free shave set all you have to do is pay for shipping check it out and DraftKings. Go to DraftKings.com, use the promo code REALGM, and with your first deposit, you can get entered in some pretty awesome contests. You should definitely check those out. Podcast runs a little bit over an hour. I think it's about an hour five. Hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. You and I are both fairly cautious by nature. I don't know if that's the legal background or if it's just the way we are. And, you know, a lot of times at the beginning of the season, we're cautioning people to not overreact to stuff. It's a small sample size and all that. And that's still true. We're, we're heavily in that part of the year right now. I mean, the Orlando Magic are still six and two and fourth in net rating when we're recording this podcast. But where I wanted to start was going the other way. And it's what are people or are we as individuals and writers underreacting to? Meaning, are there big stories that we're maybe we're not talking about it yet all the way because it's not sure, but that we should be keeping a close eye on? Yeah, I mean, it's it's obvious that when you're telling yourself not to overreact to something, naturally you are going to underreact to things. And I think to me, the, the biggest one that people are underreacting to so far is how good Boston looks. Once Gordon Hayward went down in that first game of the season, the immediate reaction was, okay, they're done. Who's actually, who's the next East contender that's going to step up to challenge the Cavs? And, you know, they lost to Milwaukee the next night, which was understandable. You know, playing a back to back, I believe the game was on the road as well. So it made sense, you know, coming off the traumatic injury and then they go play another game the next day. They lost again, but, They've won all six of their games since. They are, I believe, first in the league in defensive rating. And I just looked it up. They are first in the league. They're third in net rating, only 0.1 points per 100 possessions behind the Thunder, who are second. And all of the kids look awesome. Like, the only one that doesn't is, like, Abdul Nader, and he's played, like, 10 minutes. So they're really good. Obviously, they would be better with Gordon Hayward, but I think we might be underreacting to, at least during the regular season, how good they can be. Yeah, I'm going to have a much better sense of them. We're recording this on Friday afternoon after doing them for the Twitter NBA show. But what I've been impressed by is that they've done a nice job of using what guys do well and trying to minimize what they don't do well. So Kyrie, not the greatest as a pick and roll guy, but when you're switching everything, like the Cavs basically had to do because he dies on every screen, it works. And that fits so well with Boston's personnel because now, especially, they have all these like-sized guys. And even the ones like Marcus Smart, maybe he's a little shorter in height, but he's strong and he can defend those big guys too. So their defensive scheme makes fundamental sense. And then I've actually been more impressed that their offense has stayed, you know, afloat when I can, you know, Mm -hmm. you think about the loss of 
Isaiah, who, yeah, you can talk about Isaiah and Kyrie. They're both really good offensive players, but I thought that changeover is going to be much bigger. They have, I think it's 13 new players. And then they lost a, a linchpin of their offense in horrifying fashion five minutes into the season. Yeah, and look, it's a lot of that is just the last two number three picks picking up like a huge portion of the offensive load pretty seamlessly. Like Jalen Brown this year is awesome. He's averaging 16 a game, getting to the rim, you know, on straight line drives pretty much whenever he wants, no matter if he's being covered by a bigger guy or a smaller guy, shooting over 40% from three. And Jason Tatum, I don't think, has played a bad game yet. You know, he's not carrying a huge offensive load, but he's carrying a very big minute load and doing the things that he does best. I mean, that's, you know, you mentioned Stevens putting his guys in a position to succeed. He's doing a really good job of scheming Tatum into situations where he is in space and can use that space to create for himself, which is the best offensive skill that he has. So those two guys being able to pick that up has been really important for them. And they've sort of picked up where they left off two-man game-wise last year. A lot of the stuff they did for Isaiah and Horford, they've just put Kyrie into those actions, and it's worked really, really well for them. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see what parts of their defense hold up and what parts don't. They still have had, it's not like they're perfect in that way. I've, I've been intrigued by the idea of just where they're going to go when they get Mark, when they get Marcus Morris not back because they've never had him, but when he mm-hmm. return, when he gets healthy and when he can play. And Boston just, I, I still have trouble visualizing it. I think that's part of, of what the beginning of the season is, but it's certainly there. And so like right now, they're number one in opposing effective field goal percentage. And even if that tones down, they they still can have that as a strength. They're forcing turnovers pretty well. They're top third. They're not number, I think they were number one or number two two years ago, and so you're kind of wondering about that. But the fact mm-hmm. that they've been able to maintain at least in the early going, that defense with entirely new personnel other than Horford, pretty much, and Jalen's looking better. It's it's really impressive. Yeah, and, you know, you mentioned Morris. You know, they were going to start him for sure coming into the year before that injury, and I feel like now they almost have to bring him on the bench the way that starting group is playing together. Uh, sort of a similar situation to Washington where, you know, they were obviously going to start Markeith, but their Otto Porter, Kelly Oubre, Martin Gortat front court is playing so well that they might have to bring Markeith off the bench. Both Morris brothers looked like they were going to be in line for, you know, big starting roles. And I think the way their teams are playing, it might make more sense to send them to the second unit. Yeah, no, it's it's also one thing uh, before we go into whatever was next. Um, I, I think it's going to work better for them in the regular season than I do in the playoffs. Like, I, I think that they can still get into you know, maybe the mid-50s wins-wise, but it just won't be quite as good for them once we get to the postseason. And this is something we talked about, I think, prior to two seasons ago. You know, the importance of having no bad players. Like, they go, you know, in the first half, they'll play 11, 12 guys every single time. And then, you know, like maybe whether whoever it is, like Shane Larkin won't play in the second half but the other 10 guys will, or maybe Daniel Tyson won't play in the second half and, and, you know, the other nine guys will. But they never have bad players on the court, whether it's all starters, a mix of starters and reserves, or all reserves. And that's so valuable when you're playing against 
teams that do have bad players on the court. Like the difference between sub replacement level and the replacement level a lot of the time is different than or is bigger than, you know, replacement level and above average or above average and very good. Um, so the fact that they have so many playable guys and they never have to deal with having true negatives on the floor that really torpedo you is is a, a big reason why I think they've been able to stay successful. Another team that has benefited from that same idea is the Utah Jazz. The Jazz mm-hmm. have looked good in that sort of a way. I'm still not completely sold on on their ceiling, you know, and especially we talked about it as a playoff series that those deep teams because when you narrow a rotation, you consolidate a rotation that matters a lot less than star talent. But yeah, it's going to be worth watching. And so for me, the under the big underreaction in the Eastern Conference is how wide open the playoff structure is probably going to be because while Cleveland to me as long as they're healthy is the front runner regardless of what their record is what their seed is we could see some genuinely crazy stuff there because maybe somebody stands out and goes to the one like that sort of thing you think there are going to be anomalies either way but this could just be a pack of teams in the uh, like maybe a one group in the high to mid 40s and another group in the low 40s and that we're going into even the last week of the season and these teams are just bouncing around because nobody's gonna just I don't think anybody from this group is gonna roll into like the the mid to high 50s yeah I'm not sure that that will happen either I, I do think that there will be a group of teams like you said in maybe I guess the low to mid 50s like Boston and I think Washington will be there too if they can figure out like I don't know. They're, they're so weird. Like some nights they look great and some nights they like they lose to the Lakers and the and then the Suns. Like I, I thought they, they looked very good early on. And then all of a sudden they just lose two stupid games like that. But the group in you know, the mid to high 30s to low 40s is way more interesting to me. And I think it might be bigger than I thought it was going to be because some of the teams that I thought might get into the high 40s like you know uh, a Miami or a Milwaukee seem like they might be more like low 40s type teams and that all of a sudden groups them with teams like Detroit and Indiana and Charlotte and now it looks like Orlando can get into the high 30s or low 40s too so that that bottom group of the east of teams that look like they're going to be fighting for I guess four to eight or five to eight I think might be bigger than we thought. I think so too. And before the season, I wondered how the wins against the dregs were going to work themselves out. Because one idea was that those teams were going to mix against each other and that, you know, you'd have a bunch of teams in the, maybe the high twenties and not as many in the bottom. And I think what we're going to see, know, seeing what we've seen right now, especially with the, the Mavericks really struggling, I think this is a mm-hmm. team that, that could end up swinging relatively early is that, Maybe the Pacers and the Magic and maybe the Nets or the Knicks, depending on if one of those teams can kind of get it more regularly together, will just win a higher proportion of those games than we expected and separate themselves from that group. Whether you could, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing long term is a different question. But if Indiana, if Orlando can win those games, then they move basically without even the, the talent shift that we've seen. And it looks like both those teams are better, at least than I thought they were. And But even without that, if they just win those games more reliably, that gives them a nice little buffer that, especially if they can stay competitive in the games against better teams. Yeah, and I thought, look, I thought Atlanta and Chicago were going to be really bad, but it looks like they might even be worse than I thought, too. Um, especially Atlanta, I thought that there was a chance, you know, just 
Bud is such a good coach. They do have some degree of continuity there, even though they obviously lost Millsap, who was you know the best guy on the team, best guy on the team last year. And I thought that they would be able to not be a good team by any stretch of the imagination, but approach competence. And it doesn't really seem like that'll be the case based on the way they played early in the year. Um, they're one and seven. I think they have either the worst or the second worst point differential, if I'm remembering. They look really bad. Chicago obviously is just as bad as we expected. That will will help those teams too because you know you might have thought maybe Indiana does lose a game to the Hawks at some point or something like that. And if they're just so bad that anybody can beat them, then all of a sudden you only have competitive bad teams like the Knicks, Nets, and you know that might be it. You know everybody else might be somewhere above pretty good. With the Hawks, something that's been troubling to me, and again, small sample size theater for sure, is that you. One of my thoughts was, oh, they've been struggling. Dennis Schroeder's been out. That's true. You know that has been that has been a part of it. But when Schroeder was is has been on the floor, they've had an offensive rating of a hundred point eight. That's horrendous. And even if you have a good defense, you're not going to be able to survive that. It's, it's kind of like what screwed Orlando last year. I mean, Orlando mm-hmm. last year, they were. I think my feeling was that their defense got sabotaged by to a degree by their offense. Their defense also got sabotaged by those guys not playing nearly as well as I expected. But if you can't score, you're going to be facing the other team in transition more and you're going to be getting fewer half court, you're fewer, more half court looks yourself. And so I think those things run together. And my thought was that Atlanta's defense was going to be good enough that they would get enough cheapies that it would work. And I'm open to the possibility, especially considering they have a brutally hard November schedule, that this just gets away from them. Yeah, I think that that's definitely possible. You know, to, to go to the other really bad team in the conference, though. You know, we're speaking of underreactions. I mean, is it possible that the Bulls have the worst offense of all time this season? They're scoring 90 points per 100 possessions right now. And you look at the roster and there is just nobody that you could count on for above average offense. Like Larry Markinen might be the most reliable offensive player on the team. And I'm not sure we can count on that to continue throughout the whole season if you just don't have to pay attention to everybody, anybody else on the floor. I mean, it's, we're still in in the area where there's not a ton of a ton of sample to work through, but it is, you're right that there isn't much of a through line. I mean, I like to use the phrase "the theory of a team," and the theory of the Bulls is really troubling because there aren't that many ways for them, you know, other than having Zach Levine back or something like that, for them to really impress in that way. So when you're talking about the worst teams of the offenses of the modern era, there, you know, the, the way offensive rating has gone, there aren't that many in the, like let's say the last 20 years that Philly team in 2014-15 is probably mm-hmm. in that conversation they were absolutely horrendous and then of course you have some teams in like the 70s and, and everything like that but oh and that that, that Charlotte team that won seven games I, I, I think I remember oh, their, right, their offense right, was right. really bad but Chicago like, what has concerned me about it especially considering that this might be more of a long-term thing for the Bulls is when I watch them I don't think oh getting Zach Levine back is going to fix all this like, it'll help Obviously, it'll help. He's a talented player, and Justin Holiday has taken way too many shots, and so getting yeah, and getting Levine out there, <laughs> you know, even I, I was I was critical of like the way Levine played offense, especially in his early years in Minnesota, even when he wasn't playing point guard, which was a huge mistake by Sam Mitchell and later by Flip. But that would be a whole heck of a lot better than what they've had so far. And getting Miritich back will help. But yeah, I think 
I think they're going to be on the short list in that way. And then what's concerning with Chicago in that same vein is how long it's going to take for that to flip, because this is not a situation where other than Levine, they're dealing with, oh, we have all these talented players and they're on the shelf. They don't have Ben Simmons out for the year. They don't have Joel Embiid out for the year. It's basically other than Chris Dunn getting to be 100% and I guess Miritich, but I don't think of him as a long-term piece on this team. It's going to take a long time to get that much better, especially because they don't really want to rush it in terms of free agents because as we know, when you get to be an unrestricted free agent, which is the way they would probably get most of their guys, those guys are too old to be bulls right now. Mm -hmm. And look, I mean, a lot of the reason that they're having these struggles is because, you know, their point guard rotation is just abysmal. This is something Nate and I talked about when we did the Knicks preview podcast on Dunk Don, where, you know, we thought that they were going to really, really struggle for points because it seemed like there was just no way that they could have anybody creating shots for anyone else. You know, early in the season, it looks like we were at least a little bit off on that because Jarrett Jack is playing well. And I think Frank Nilakina is playing better earlier on than anybody expected he would this early in the season. You know, I still don't think that they're going to be a good offense or that those performances will necessarily keep up throughout the rest of the year, but they don't look like they're anywhere in the same stratosphere as the Bulls, which I think is what people thought was going to happen before the season. Like those two teams would just have similarly awful point guard groups that would completely undermine the team. And it looks like the Bulls, you know, with, with whether it's Chris Dunn or Jaron Grant or Kay Felder on the court, whoever it is, it's just so dire out there for them. And, you know, they're, they're all struggling to create, obviously, for themselves, and they can't really create anything for anyone else either. Yeah, it's definitely a concern. Before we move on, I want to take a little bit of time to tell you about DraftKings. DraftKings is a great way to engage differently with the NBA now that the season is going in full strength. Also, without a lot of the burdens and the headaches of a long-term commitment like a fantasy league, I've found full-season fantasy basketball a little bit frustrating, not only because of things like injuries. I mean, we've already seen this season with Hayward and Lynn and so many other players, but because that's not necessarily the way you watch the sport. Some nights you want to do other things, if you're not me, and then other nights you want to be engaged. And it can also give you a way to, for those of us who like League Pass, to watch different games, to focus on different people. Or if it's a big national day, like a Thursday, you can watch that way. I know we had a lot of people when Nate and I were doing Dunked On that were telling us about how ridiculous LeBron's game was in terms of DraftKings. And if you're experienced with that before, you don't need as much of my sales pitch. You know how much fun it can be. But if you're new to it, another great thing that DraftKings offers is that you can do beginner and casual contests if you haven't had an account for very long, if you haven't done many contests. And so that way you're not playing against the hardened competitors and it makes it more fun. I've been enjoying that in Daily Fantasy since I'm admittedly new to it myself. And it works for those of you who are familiar with the format. It works like the other ones you can just pick eight players and they have a salary cap function. So certain players are worth more than others. So that means you don't have to worry about not being able to draft your favorite player. If you want somebody on your team, they are on your team. And the way that you can check it out and also support us is draftkings.com. And then you use the promo code RealGM. And you can play for free with your first deposit for a share of a big a big prize. And so again, it's DraftKings.com, and then you use the promo code RealGM. Lots of different options. Find something that works for you. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. And moving into the West, 
I don't have as much there, I think, just because teams, it took a little while because you had some that really struggled early, including the Warriors, and then you had the Clippers that were absolutely molten early in the season, and they've come back to earth a little bit. But the one for me is, it's it's an underreaction to something that I think a lot of us expected, which is this theory that the Pelicans were going to be pretty good, but not dominant, and that that just isn't enough in the West. It's far from the certainty they have. They've been dealing with a ton of injuries and everything else, but you watch them just have these absolute eggs of games where like, there's one where DeMarcus Cousins was just awful. He was forcing bad shots. He wasn't playing as well defensively. And that's not going to be good enough. They're go- and they, you know, they had some time where Anthony Davis missed a couple games because he always does. That's not, that's not an unfair sample. And so you have the Pelicans to me, they're just looking like that team where they're going to need a lot to go right in order to get to the playoffs. And I wonder what this team looks like if they have a reasonable year. It's not like, oh, you know, everything went wrong and they won 35 games. But if it's like things go reasonably well and they win 40 to 41 games and miss the playoffs, where do they go from here? (laughs) It's tough to say. I mean, at that point, does Boogie even want to come back, even if they want to re-sign him? And look, they're getting 57 and 25 every night from Cousins and Davis, and they still, I mean, two of their three wins are against the Kings and the Lakers. So it's not like they're, they've they gone out there and beat anybody worth anything except the Cavs who are just, like, not trying. Um, but it's, um, it's concerning. I think it was predictably something that was going to happen. You know, they're going to struggle with injuries. Like, what else is new with that team? They have, you know, probably the worst wing rotation uh, among all teams in the Western Conference that thought they were going to be playoff teams. And that's something that you just can't have these days as everybody stocks the court with wing players. Pushing Drew Holiday to the wing was like something that they wanted to try. But it somewhat works with Jameer Nelson out there. It doesn't really work with anyone else out there. And I don't think Rajon Rondo solves it. Something that I want to watch for them over the month of November is they have this dynamic with their schedule where they have a lot of okay teams like okay to good teams on the road and then they have a lot of good to very good teams at home and that can either be very good or very bad because like for example they're playing indiana and denver on the road in this next couple weeks if you win those games that's great you know those are nice wins Mm -hmm. denver has the biggest home court they've looked a little bit better in the last game or two but i'm still concerned about their offense broadly speaking and then they have OKC, San Antonio, Minnesota, the Clippers, like those type of teams at home. So what that means is if it goes well, then you're building some confidence. You're getting wins against teams that are play- they're likely going to make the playoffs. But if you're a little bit below your standard, then it starts to, the thread starts to unravel because you're losing the marginal games that you need to win. Right. And look, I mean, not everybody has to play the same way in the NBA. That would be boring. But it's also at a certain point you have to think about who that team is constructed to beat. It's like they have Drew and they have the two big guys. And then in between, there's just nothing there really that makes a ton of sense. And it's every single night they have to experiment to figure out what works and against who. And unless they start off hot and figure out what that is, a lot of times they're working behind the eight ball. They also have the problem where their biggest need, you know, depth on the wing and and shooting is exceedingly hard to find. So there was that rumor that was out there that they were considering trading some dead salary in a first round pick for Reggie Jackson. Yeah, you can get a guy like Reggie Jackson for that sort of an offer because there are a fair number of point guards and he has way too many years left on his contract. But you're not going to get a three and D wing 
for anything close to that. And it's it's just hard to figure out like uh, a problem that I've just been sitting there. And it's crazy because I love Davis so much, and I'm I'm a fan of Boogie too when he's when he's at his best. But I was sitting there watching. I think it was it was one of their losses this week. Oh, when they lost to Minnesota, and I was going there, uh, and the Orlando one. It was both those, and I'm like, okay, well, if they keep Boogie, how good are they going to be? And it's like, well, you know, if they get do a good job with the middle level exception, if they do all this stuff, you know, maybe they can be as you know a decent playoff team. And I'm like, and then if Boogie leaves, then it's a huge problem. And so just kind of sitting there going, well, wh- how is this going to work? Right, and it's also. I mean, look, if they keep if they keep him, there is really no way for them to get those wing guys that they need until Davis is up for a new contract again, because he's going to opt out after that 2019-20 season to get another big deal. And, you know, you'll have still Drew on the books for that summer and probably one more based on, you know, the, the level of compensation and the career path that you would expect him to follow. You'll have Boogie's contract on the books. And I mean, before that, there's just no salary relief for them at all because Drew and, and AD are making, you know, over 50 million combined. And they still have contracts out to guys like Solomon Hill and Omar Ashik and Etwan Moore. And there, there's just no way for them to add a high level wing player. There also aren't that many high level wing players to add. And the, right. the, the, the sample is going to be huge. That's why I was so frustrated that teams kept on passing on OG and Anobi in the draft is because even if it doesn't, like, even if it doesn't work, you still need a rotation guy. You know, like, players like him provide real value. He's looked good for the Raptors so far. I, I consistently enjoy the Raptors bench players. I mean, Jakob Pertl has had a couple of nice games. He had a great game at Oracle. So that, of course, always <laughs> stands out just because when you see it in person and those teams that are taking the right chances that are making the right bets they also get the benefit even though the rookie scale is adjusted and it's better now than it was before where that allows you to do these other things and with new orleans right now they don't have i'm trying to remember if they have anybody i think they they only have one guy on a rookie scale contract they might not even have anybody who's the one guy i mean uh is chick diallo no no because he was i think he was like 32 so i don't think he is Mm. yeah and frank frank jackson was 31 so yeah they might not have anybody anymore that's wild and so are they the only team for whom that's true I was going to say the Cavs, but they have Zizic now. Although, is he on the scale? I guess he yeah, was he a first is. He pick, is on the so. scale. Yeah, he, he, he only waited one year, so he is definitely on the scale. Yeah, so I think they are the only team without anybody. And that has huge ramifications in terms of your long-term books because rookie scale players are almost always cheaper than their alternatives. And especially when you're not this super desirable market. I mean, there are a lot of guys who would like to play in New Orleans. And if especially if they were a little bit better, I think they could do well with minimum contracts. But you would think that guys would want to play with Davis, too. But the way their books are set up, there's just never going to be a chance to find out. They also have, like as you said, a lot of these contracts extend. Like Alexei Agensa, if he was an expiring contract right now, I'm guessing they could move him. I also don't understand mm-hmm. what the incentive would be. But yeah, he's getting another $5.3 million next year. Omar Ashik, after this season, is owed about $14.5 million. Some of that, you know, we still have no idea what's going to happen with, with his crazy health stuff. You know, maybe there's right. a possibility they could get some relief there. And that would actually be the game changer for them. But the problem is, let's say theoretically they could pull what the Wolves did with Nikola Pekovic and they could just wipe him off their books, you know, get the, get the injury exclusion like, like the, he did with Chris Bosch. He's never going to play again. Let's say they did that. 
what that gives New Orleans is really only the ability to use their mid-level exception without going into the luxury tax. It doesn't say, oh my god, now they're going to get this $15 million guy. It doesn't open that door. It just makes the current team they have more palatable. Yeah, I mean, look, at least they have all of their draft picks going forward. Yeah. So there's always the chance that they could get well, lucky like and, they did with the Davis lottery or if they can just hit one pick once. And and also remember, like, this is in many ways a fortunate turn for them because if they hadn't traded what became the 10th pick and Buddy Heald for DeMarcus Cousins, they would be in an even worse place. Yeah, I mean, unless they completely nailed that 10th pick. Or that, you know what? They would probably still be in a worse situation. And look, this is something that, that I think both you and I have been talking about going back years now is, you know, the way that they decided to build their team in the wake of drafting Anthony Davis. You know, they, they re-signed Eric Gordon, then drafted Austin Rivers, another shooting guard. Gordon didn't want to be there. They traded multiple centers and point guards only to then deal future first round picks for other centers and point guards who now have unwieldy contracts it's um it's it has not been very good management uh to say the least and it's it's not just affecting them over the last few years and now but it's gonna affect them into the future they also didn't read where the league was going with like with Oshik. I mean, some of that was just misfortune. If Oshik had been a free agent a year later, they probably would have had a better sense of it. And Davis doesn't want to play center. So you need to have somebody and that somebody's probably going to make about his money. It's just that that other person could contribute more. The way that I, I wanted to kind of pivot from there is we're still in the early side of the sample, you know, seven, eight games for a lot of these teams. But I wanted to kind of touch base with you in terms of how you're thinking a lot of the, the new faces and new places are looking and i think the place to start with that is the oklahoma city thunder how do you think they're looking so far i think overall they look about like i expected them to they're actually their point differential is way better than their record right now they're leading the west in point differential some of that is a couple of big wins but they're um trying to figure out how to say this like carmelo i think has fit in more seamlessly than paul george has and i'm not really surprised by that at all, given the way the two of them play. Like, it just, Carmelo can do more of the same things that he always did, just less often. Whereas Paul George has to sort of figure out a new way to fit in offensively because Westbrook has the ball in his hand so much. You know, Russ isn't shooting as much, obviously, as he did uh, last year, especially, but also, you know, over previous years. But he still has the ball in his hands all the time which means PG has to figure out ways to different ways to shake himself open. I guess, you know, he obviously spent a lot of time off the ball when he was in Indiana, but it's, it's a much more centralized offense. And there have been games where he sort of has to force his way into the action. And um, I guess over the last couple of games, he's gotten a little bit more comfortable, but I'm not surprised to see Carmelo fitting more seamlessly into the offense than George has. One of the big takeaways for me, and I was expecting this to last a lot longer before Donovan figured out, not because he's a bad coach or a poor tactician, just because when you add so many new pieces, you have to try a lot of things, is the idea that they've been using Melo so much more when Westbrook's been off the floor. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense to me from both ends, because offensively, you know, you you know this better than most people, better than almost anybody, that, you know, Melo, as the offensive engine doesn't necessarily have the highest ceiling but it does have a higher floor than anything Oklahoma City did last year yeah their biggest issue last season was that 
everything completely collapsed when Russ left the floor. And the combination of having like just straight up competent backup point guard play from Ray Felton, who has actually been making every shot that he takes, um, but just a level of competence out there and keeping the offense actually running like a real NBA offense has been really key. And then having Carmelo as a guy that can soak up so many possessions with that second unit, because some of those other guys aren't necessarily going to create anything like Alex Abrinas or Patrick Patterson, even though they're good shooters, they're really not creating anything at all. So it falls a lot to Carmelo to be able to manufacture looks. And it's beneficial for him too, because it's way easier to cook backup forwards than it is to cook against, you know, the guys that are starters. And it's something that I suggested over the last few years for the Knicks, which was putting Carmelo on, you know, the the Dirk rest plan where he comes out like six minutes into the game, sits for three or four minutes, plays for four or five minutes against bench guys, sits for another three or four minutes and then closes the half. But he's always been a guy that played the full first 12 and then sat for the first six minutes of the second quarter and then came in down the stretch. But he's doing the Dirk plan in Oklahoma City because he's not the number one guy there. And it's working really well for him. They also, it's I, a big takeaway for me so far is that they haven't suffered the ill effects, and this might come in later, of not really having a backup center. You know, mm-hmm. Dakari Johnson was their only other center on the roster, you know, natural five, and he's not playing. They're really using Patrick Patterson in that spot. Steven Adams has been awesome so far this year, and I think he deserves credit, but that they've basically been rolling with Patterson at the backup five. And with the way the league is going, there aren't really that many teams that are going to punish them for it. And their goal in those minutes is very different from a lot of other teams because their starting five is good. They can really, if they can tread water when Russell Westbrook is out, that is a victory for them. And that will set them up to win a lot of games. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you said you made the point about there not really being any teams that can make them pay for it anymore, because that is where the league is trending. It almost doesn't matter that they don't have a true center that can back up Adams because who are the guys that are making them pay? Like, are you really super worried about Greg Monroe dominating your second unit? I don't think so. It's just not a big issue. And I think that they can get away with whether it's Patrick Patterson or Jeremy Grant for whatever it is, four minute stretches before Adams comes back in. They're also more, to me, offensive creators, not really of the Lou Williams mold, but they're just just the way second units are working right now, that you don't need those centers that are the hub as much as it, it used to be, where there just wasn't enough skill on the perimeter in second units to make it happen. And so that you know that, that ties in with Jaleel Okafor, who's in the middle of kind of purgatory with the Sixers. We don't know how long that's going to last, but there are teams that could use those type of guys well, but there aren't that many of those slots left. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's a player that could make sense in certain situations depending on, or sorry, it's a, it's a type of player that could make sense in certain situations depending on, you know, what that particular team needs. But it's just way easier to create looks from the perimeter now than it is on the inside. So even though it, it could be a beneficial thing to have someone in that role that can create a lot of offense for you. It's just not going to be very efficient anyway. So you might as well have, you know, like you said, Lou Williams types that captain your second unit offense, because it's just going to be better that way. 
congratulations to Al Jefferson on getting his money at exactly the right time because if he had been yeah. a free agent a year later, you know, maybe there is going to be that one team that, that pays him. But there are not only just a ton of guys that fit that role moving forward, but a lot of them are going to be free agents soon too. And so how that happens, like are those guys going to start taking the minimum or things like that? Or are they even some of them going to start being out of the league? I mean, I think that he was in a lesser class, but you know, Spencer Hawes is not in the NBA right now. Yeah, I think that we may see a bunch of them just wind up out of the league because a bunch of them, like you know, like you said, are going to hit free agency this summer. And looking at the draft, you know, I haven't done a ton of homework on it yet, but every list that you look at is like stocked with big guys at the top, and they're all like new agey type big guys that can stretch and play in space and put the ball on the floor. And those guys just make so much more sense. And they're probably going to be cheaper and they will last longer and they're cost controlled and they have way higher upside. And it just seems like they're going to get the jobs that might have gone to these big guys that are going to be free agents. Also, the way that big men are being used offensively, I think is a lot easier to be picked up now. Defensively, it's a big challenge. And that's that, you know, they're always going to struggle. But so you see teams like what are what Miami did when Hassan Whiteside was out, they threw Bam Adebayo out there and they have a great coaching staff and development and they, it's a little bit different, but if you can get 10 to 15 minutes out of a guy who you took in the late lottery or the late first round, or even the second round, like the Warriors with Jordan Bell, then by all means, don't spend the mid-level exception on a center, unless it's a guy who you think has, can be a fringe starter. But if a guy can be a fringe starter, he's going to make more than the mid-level exception most years. Right. And it's also, they're going to struggle defensively with the mental side of it and with knowing where to be at all times. But there are certain things that centers are asked to do defensively now that a lot of these guys can do just because they're so athletic. Like you watch Adebayo and he can switch out onto guys on the perimeter and like do okay with it. He may not be in the right position at all times, but at least you know that you can count on him to do some of those, uh, those center type things that guys need to do these days because of the way teams play defense. Also, the nature of the cap, I think, is going to lead to a lot of teams being unhappy that players pick up player options just because they don't want to be oh, a part yeah. of this market. That could go, I mean, I think guys like Costa Kufos are basically locked in on that now unless something really surprising happens. And that will, you know, that's going to narrow the number of jobs too, because even if, let's say, Sacramento, Sacramento has an army of bigs anyway, but, you know, if those types of guys are opting into the, opting into their contracts, then they're not going to spend money on someone else, because even if they're not happy with who they have, they're going to go there. And so, yeah, the jobs for Greg Monroe and Brooke Lopez, and he's not the offensive guy, but Ed Davis, you know, like those types of players are going to have some real struggles here, finding a job and getting it. Brandon Wright, you know, when he's healthy, he's been productive for the Grizzlies, and I don't know what happens with them. Yeah, and look, that actually happened with Monroe this year. Like, you don't think Milwaukee would have rather had him opt out of that, you know, 18, 19 million or whatever his contract is this season. Uh, instead of having to pay him that, they could have added somebody else that would help them much more. Like, I think it's pretty clear that they would rather have had that space available. But you mentioned Ed Davis, and I think we need to talk about this. I don't think anybody else has grabbed a rebound when he's been on the court other than him. He has gotten every single rebound this season. He's averaging nine rebounds a game in 19 minutes a night. And coming into last night's game, 
against the Lakers, he had the highest offensive rebound percentage of all time. That dude is doing work right now. He is. And when I was looking at stuff before the season, I mean, you have the question because they have a billionaire owner, but it looked to me like after the crab trade, they could get under the tax and that has benefits in terms of the repeater and all sorts of things moving forward. But the most logical piece to move was Ed Davis. But now I'm sitting there going, especially right now, their, their forward depth is an issue. Alfaruk Aminu is going to be out for a couple of weeks with an ankle sprain. I'm sitting there going, well, if they're on the fringe of the playoff race, can they really afford to just salary dump Ed Davis even if a team wanted him? I don't think they can. I mean, unless either Noah Vonley or Swanigan, or I mean, I guess there are a bunch of options. Vonley, Swanigan, Zach Collins, uh, you know, emerges as a truly reliable uh, 15, 20 minute a game guy that you can use in that spot every night uh, between now and the trade deadline. And Swanigan has played well in tandem with Davis. I haven't seen as much of Collins yet. And Vonley, I guess, has been starting either just the last game or the last two games, however long I mean, has been out. He's sort of varyingly effective. He, um, I think he's played better this year than he did when he was what you and Nate like to call like the honorary starter, the ceremonial starter uh, last season. But I don't think you can count on any of them to soak up all of Davis's minutes. He's too important to what they're doing, definitely with the bench units. And then he's playing some with the starters, too. And they have a real incentive because, I mean, losing an extra game or two down the stretch could cost them a playoff berth. We know how close it was last year, and I think we would both agree that at this moment, and things can change, getting into the West playoffs is going to be harder than it was last year. Absolutely. I mean, look, if it's going to come down to the last couple of weeks of the season for whoever is in the mix for those, I guess at this point, you got to say five to eight. I don't think that uh, Minnesota has sort of separated itself from the bottom of the playoff bracket like people thought that they would. I think it's going to come down to, uh, like you said, one game could mean a whole lot, and uh, they're going to need every single game that they can get. want to take a quick moment to tell you about Harry's. Harry's is built on a very basic but important idea, and that's getting a great shave at a fair price. And it is that mentality and their amazing execution that has made them have over 3 million people switch over to Harry's. And it's also that confidence that allows them to do the promotion they're doing right now, which I think is very cool. And that's not about giving you a discount code or something like that and nothing wrong with discount codes. But what they want to do is they want to get their product in your hands. And so how they're going to do that is you go to harrys.com slash real GM and you get the trial shave set for free. That includes a razor handle, blades, shave gel, and a, a travel cover. And I'm a huge fan. You probably heard me talk about before about their shave gel, but the razors themselves are wonderful too. They give you a really, a really comfortable, close shave, and they do it in a, a very interesting fashion. I mean, it's hard in in businesses like this where there are established entities to sometimes to find your niche. And so what Jeff and Andy, the, the guys who founded Harry's did, is they just bought a German factory that had been making blades for over 100 years and took away a lot of the other elements of shaving that ad cost, middlemen and everything of that nature, and also some of the markups. And that allows them to get to that idea of a great shave at a fair price. And so they are confident, and I am confident, that if you give them a chance, and you can do that with the free shave set, that you will love it too. So again, that is harrys.com slash realgm, and it's a free shave set. All you have to do is pay for shipping yourself. One more time, harrys.com slash realgm. 
I'll let you talk a little bit about, we talked vaguely about the Knicks before, and we were do, recording this the day after Frank Nokina had five steals. So what have you seen from him so far? I think he looks better than I expected offensively. Obviously, you know, the, the steal numbers are huge. I think he's among the league leaders in steals per game, even though he's only playing like 15 minutes a night or so. Uh, his shot is not going down just yet, which is not something that necessarily surprises me. He's kind of out of balance when he shoots it sometimes, and he's rushing them a little bit as if he needs to try to prove that he can score. But he's shown in both the half court and in fast break situations, I think better feel for dictating the flow of the offense than I expected that he would in his first season. He's made some really, really nice passes uh, through like a half court alley-oop to Tim Hardaway. He's made a couple of really nice like slide through passes on the break when a big guy has beaten his man down the floor. He seems sort of like under control offensively as long as he's not doing anything other than shooting a pull-up jumper. I was so impressed with him in the pre-draft stuff, watching film, watching him on Synergy with his defense. I think Nokina can be special on that end. And for a guard, that's becoming increasingly important. I think he can eventually defend both guard positions. Very smart in that way. And Generally speaking, for me, when I see somebody who is smart and engaged defensively, I think that ends up transferring over offensively. I mean, you never expect it to go like the full, you know, Draymond Green, but guys who are smart defenders, they know spacing, they know where other guys are. And so I'm not sure he's ever going to, and I just need to see more and and see how he grows because we don't know the answer to this question, whether he'll be able to reliably create separation and, and hit jumpers off of that. But at the very least, if he can be a high level defender and be a ball mover, an open shot hitter defensively, you can make that work as a part of a successful team. Absolutely. And look, he's already had like some highlight real defensive stands where he's like forcing Dwayne Wade or James Harden to dribble for like 10 seconds and then miss. He knows how to move his feet really well. And, you know, it's been reported that he has a seven foot wingspan. I don't know if it's actually been measured, but it sort of looks like it. Like there, there was like a zoomed up, zoomed in close up of him during one of their games and he had his hands in the air. And it was like normally you would expect that a guy that has his hands in the air like that, his hands would actually be on the screen based on where the camera was. And it was like you couldn't even see his wrists because his arms are so long. They just pushed out of the screen. He's um, that, that length is crazy. And combined with the fact that he knows, seems to know at least already, where to go defensively and where, and where to be. He's made some really nice rotations off the ball as well. I, I, I got to agree with you. He's going to be a really, really good defender. I also like it when, you know, obviously you want teams to get stars early and everything like that. But when you have a support player and you're still not a dominant team, you can find, you know, you, you ha- hopefully you'll get the chance to get that star guy and everything can help fit in a little bit better. And something that that connects to with me is I've been very encouraged early on by how well Simmons and Embiid have played together because Mm -hmm. part of what happened last year was Embiid was offensively too big a fish for the pond he was in. And so I thought he made some mistakes. And especially in the last couple games, the game against the Rockets that they had, and just broadly, he's done a better job of realizing, oh, I don't need to do everything myself. That's why we have these other guys. And they've shown, I think, impressive feel for how to freelance 
into things together as well. You know, there was a clip that went around uh, on Twitter of Embiid setting a screen for Simmons. They drew a switch, and he realized Simmons needed another screen to sort of get his way into the paint. But the guys looked like they were going to blitz, so he slipped the screen, and Simmons threw the pass over the top. The fact that they can figure out how to get into that stuff already after having played whatever it is, just like six or seven games together, is is really impressive. And Simmons, I mean, that guy is just so freaking good, man. Like, he's everything that we ever wanted Lamar Odom to be. And it's just, I, I love it so much. One of my mea culpas that I can make this early in the season is that I thought Lonzo was going to get the counting stats because he's a willing shooter and all of that, and that Ben Simmons wasn't because he is, not that he's more aware of his limitations, both guys are very smart players in that way, they know they're, they know what they're doing, but what Simmons has been able to accomplish already is working within that framework. You know, he's also taken more more jumpers than I expected, but... You know, if the team's going to sag off him, he presses into that space. And since he's stronger, he can then use that to either get a good shot or get a pass. And his level of savvy and knowing how he has to succeed has been so impressive. Yeah, he's been um, impressively willing to use the space that he's afforded as a runway rather than always as an invitation to step into a shot that he's probably not going to hit. And he's just been more willing to come downhill than Lonzo has. And that's why he's getting to the free throw line a bunch too. You know, he's not making a ton of them, but if you get to the line five, six times a night, you can get a couple of free points out of that. And, and Lonzo has not been quite as willing to do that as Simmons has. Simmons has also done a really nice job on the defensive glass early. He has a defensive rebound rate of 22.4. And yeah, he is playing a lot at power forward. If you want to call it that, because Covington's guarding the other team's better forward. But that's that's pretty damn good, and Embiid has been a successful rebounder for most of his short-lived career. So you have a guy who has these foundational pieces, and defensively, the largest question with Simmons wasn't about his capability, it was just whether he was going to care. And the answer so far has been he's cared more than I expected, and his instincts are living up to expectations, which isn't a surprise, because that's how he plays. Yeah, and look, it's... He wasn't the only one that you had the concerns about as to whether he was going to care defensively. You know, that was a big question with Fultz as well. But at least getting a positive answer this early on from one of them and the one that plays in the front court is, uh, is a very, very encouraging sign for as they move into the future. One of the elements that I've been really wanting to watch this season is how the team fares with those two guys on the floor together, because that is a reasonable proxy for starters, but Embiid's minutes have waxed and way, you know, his role has changed because his minutes restriction and everything like that. And so far, offensively, they've been a little bit of a, you know, they've been at 102.6. You would hope that that would be higher, but the, they should get better. And they also, you know, they're, point guard situation has been in flux really this whole year now they're they've gone i was fascinated by it by moments in the in this they've been going with and i think that's what they did last game against the hawks they had reddick technically at the one they had they bounced around the defensive assignments because they're playing charge in in the starting rotation i'm not a big fan of that but for right now the supply is kind of dictating this but you know they've been above water they've been plus 2.5 in net rating when simmons and Embiid have played together despite that 102.6 offensive rating which is a good sign for this moving forward when you think about the fact that the defensive core is kind of there but they can add so much offensively whether it's fultz or somebody else in those other two spots and where Fultz, I think, is going to be key to that is 
you know, Redick obviously is a hugely important player for their spacing. Covington does a lot uh, on both ends with, you know, his ability to space and guard multiple positions. But they really need somebody other than Simmons that's going to pierce the defense from outside in and create those fissures. And Jared Bayless is just not capable of doing that. And and JJ, you know, for all that he brings spacing-wise with his shooting, he's not really somebody who you can put at the top of the floor and say, let's run you a pick and roll. You're going to get in, bend the defense, and find somebody. You know, you can do it on occasion out of a secondary side pick and roll action, but that's not nearly the same thing. And I think that they it will be really important for them to have somebody else other than Simmons that can get into the middle of the defense from the perimeter and not just from the post or from the elbow like Embiid can. It's a great point, and we'll see where you know where it goes this season. And also, for me, the the biggest t- goal for Philadelphia this year is evaluation. It's what do we have in these guys, and it looks like that might be sidetracked with Fultz. But if they can get it from Simmons, then that's a huge success because then you have the you basically can then think, especially if they renegotiate and extend Covington, which I just wrote about for the Sporting News then you're really focusing on the backcourt. They can put their remaining resources, which are a pick, whether it's from the Lakers or Kings, their own first, and then about max cap space into those spots primarily as opposed to everything else. Yeah, you know, evaluation in terms of what do we have and in what combinations do these guys work well. I think that that's the other part of it that's going to be really important too. Does Covington, Simmons, and Bede work together do you need a certain kind of guard combination out there with them to make it work as well as possible? How does somebody like, you know, Luwawu or McConnell fit into that? How does Sorish fit into that? Can you play all four of those guys together? These are kind of things that they're going to have to experiment with throughout the season to figure out not just how good these guys are, but in what combinations they'll work best. On a completely unrelated note, but something that you and I have a mutual passion for in terms of upcoming off seasons and cap space and all that, I have a, just a, a basic question, which is, well, it's complicated, but who the hell is going to pay Isaiah Thomas? Oh, man, who even has space next summer? Well, so um, I'll, I'll give you a couple while you're thinking about it. So the Lakers are going to have space. They're not going to mm-hmm. pay Isaiah Thomas for about five no. different reasons. The Bulls are going to have space. They're not going to pay Isaiah Thomas for a couple different reasons. I mean, even though he could help them a lot, they don't need to focus on the short term, and they definitely wouldn't give him the years. And then a lot of teams have made the choice in the recent past, including his two former teams, the Suns and the Kings, that there looks like they're focusing more towards 2019 than 2018. And there are reasons for that. I also kind of disagree with it just because it's going to be such a team-friendly market out there. And if the Cavs are largely out of the conversation with him, then I just don't know. You know, the Brinks truck, I think, is close to gone at this point, especially because of the injury concerns. But just the opportunities are are exceedingly narrow. The Sixers aren't going to pay him. You know, Mm -hmm. there just aren't that many teams that are going there. So maybe he ends up in a place like Indiana. Yeah, I was going to say Indiana. Does Orlando have space next summer? They do not Can't because remember. they're paying seventeen million each to Bismack Biombo and Evan Fournier, and then Vooch yeah, is still under nice. contract. Yeah, they're actually their worry is going to be the luxury tax, assuming they keep all this stuff together. And they've been a wonderful success story. We haven't talked about them on this podcast because I'm still not sure. I don't think they're overreaction or underreaction. I just want to see where they go from here. But it's, I mean, it's going to be a real challenge for Isaiah and a few other guys on this market, especially if. And this is something I wrote about for SN a little bit ago is there isn't that much space. My, uh, my, I haven't gotten all the way in my space race numbers after the extension season was done, but it's going to be somewhere around 
300 315 million where some of these players including Isaiah if he can find a market are going to evaporate it because if LeBron leaves Cleveland that takes away a ton of space from one team and that it doesn't open up anything because they have so much money tied up in everybody else that same mm-hmm. general logic is true not only with him but it's true with DeAndre Jordan it's true with DeMarcus Cousins it's true with Paul George all of those players do not do that. Oh, and another team that evaporated their cap space, not that they were an Isaiah suitor, is Denver. Denver, I don't think they were ever going to use it, but now they've committed to this team. I think that's going to work out for them. I, that was really their only other option because they weren't going to be a huge luxury taxpayer moving forward. But it is worth watching just that there aren't that many places for these guys to go. Yeah, the I guess it's not a cap drop. It's the, the cap not rising like people thought it would after we got the summer of the ginormous cap spike um, is going to wind up screwing a lot of these guys that by circumstance are becoming free agents a year or two after it happens. You know, they're just teams are crunched because they have these contracts they gave out that are so much bigger than they would have in any other summer because they thought that there was going to be free money forever. Turns out it was a bubble. And when you give you know, whoever it is, $60 million over four years. And all of a sudden you don't have cap space for three years anymore. Like that's just the way it goes. It's also wild that this is a very narrow high end point guard market, you know, assuming CP stays in Houston, which is not a definite, but you know, I think there are reasons to, when you engineer a trade like that, the expectation is that you're going to stay that Isaiah is really the only guy at that level on the market. You could even say that he's the only surefire starter. If you're more negative on Alfred Payton, I think, I think Alfred Payton's probably going to be a starter in the league, but with Isaiah, and yet there still isn't a place for him to go. Like that, because A, there are just so many young point guards around in the league, and B, there just isn't that much space. Well, similar to Kyle Lowry this summer. Yeah. Like you would, you would have thought that Kyle Lowry would have a huge market and get a gigantic contract, but by the time free agency actually rolled around, Toronto was basically his only option. There also probably will be somebody of the, the, there's a much greater supply, but also much greater demand for the two guards in this market. And you can include Paul George there. You can not include him. He's a little bit different, but Avery Bradley, KCP, Danny Green, depending on how you see Patrick McCaw, you know, you have a lot of these kind of two guard, not running an offense, but can be capable defenders. And where all those guys get paid, because I'm sure at least two of them are, but how that all works out is going to be huge, especially if a team like the Lakers just ends up saying, hey, we're spending our money somewhere else. Yeah, whose agent does the best job of politicking is going to determine a lot of who gets paid and how much. And also who like the Sixers prioritize, because the Sixers can completely change this market, because if they say Avery Bradley is our guy and they pay Avery Bradley, then all of a sudden that shifts everything for all these guys, because then the the Pistons don't gain any flexibility. And then all of a sudden, if you're KCP, you're like, oh, crap, you know, my best suitor's gone. My prior team, you know, the way that Kyle Lowry ended up getting paid, they're possibly out. They're almost definitely out on a long-term contract. You know, maybe they'll pay him for a year or two if they strike out on a bunch of guys. And Danny Green probably doesn't care because Danny Green would just get paid by the Spurs. Yeah, I, I think you can throw Will Barton onto that list, too. Sure. If I'm remembering correctly, he didn't get an extension. Yeah, he's um, still eligible. But I, I would say the expectation, especially with the money that Denver threw at Gary Harris and they're going to commit to Nikola Jokic, he, I think he's going to hit the open market. He could come back. You know, he's one of those guys where it's a possibility. But yeah, that's it's definitely a fair guy to include. Yeah, I mean, even a guy like um, like Kyle Anderson, who is it's sort of a different style of wing, but looks pretty good so far this season. You know, it took four years, but he's finally turned 
into a player, you know, he could wind up grouped in with those guys if he keeps playing well. I'm excited to see yeah, who prioritizes which of those players. And as you said, this is an agent year because who they how they get their intel and basically the te- the teams that strike for the players that strike first, the teams too, but the players that strike first are going to look so much better probably than the ones who go later. And we saw that this year too. Yeah, the timing matters so much and like how, I mean, it's, you know, we mentioned it with the agents, how much you can sell that there are four other teams interested in your guy. And I'll be interested to to look at if there are any particular agents repping more than one of these guys and how that shakes out because they're going to get fired from one, by one of the guys if one guy gets a contract early and the other one has to take a contract late. The other free agent dynamic that's going to be huge is a lot of these players are talented, restricted free agents who might not have as much of a market. And so are their current teams willing to play ball? And I think the best example of this is Nurkic. Like, are the Blazers going to play hardball with him? Because it could save them a ton of money, not only in terms of salary, but in terms of the luxury tax to do so, but also risk alienating somebody who has been an important part of their success the end of last year and in the early part this year. Yeah, I think you can put guys like Marcus Smart in that same box or Jabari Parker or Rodney Hood. Clint Capella, um, maybe? Clint Capella, yeah. Um, there's a bunch of guys that are important to their team and we either you know know exactly how much or you know can intuit how much or we're supposed to be super important to their team like jabari but you know because of outside circumstances have not been able to develop into you know what you thought they would and those guys are going to want to get paid at a level commensurate with you know their talent and importance but there just aren't outside teams that are going to be like all right we'll tie up you know, $75 million in Rodney Hood for three days. And that's what we're going to do with our money. It has to be a big concern. And so some of those teams are going to try to save face. I think, you know, Chicago with Zach Levine is probably the clearest of those because, or actually the, maybe the Nuggets with Jokic, because he's just such a centerpiece at this point. But we're going to have to see how that works. And I mean, you could talk about Dallas and, oh, you know, Dallas, they're, they're, I'm sure Nerlens Noel is frustrated. Guess what? It looks like that worked out incredibly well for them. Like they're they're really fortunate that he turned down that money, not only because he'll probably get less as an unrestricted free agent next year, but because by keeping that space open and by keeping that roster spot, you know, not as locked in, they can go in other directions. You know, they could be a player for Demarcus Cousins. And while Nerlens and Demarcus are very different players, Cousins could be a fascinating piece for them. Yeah, I was gonna say, who would have thought that Nerlens turning down like seventy million would be a bad idea? What was that guy thinking? It's remarkable. I mean, he he just the miscalibrated the market. He didn't have leverage on them, and Dallas knew that. You know, they didn't have it, and there were, it was an oversaturation at the position, and that oversaturation is only going to grow with time. I mean, think about players like Dwayne Dedman. I mean, Dedman has a player option for next year. There's a possibility that he does the mistake that a few guys have done, where he declines the option and then just doesn't get anywhere close to that. Yeah, and look, that's you know somewhat connected to the Noel situation because Atlanta was like basically the only team out there that he could have potentially used as leverage or bait to get the kind of contract that he wanted, and they were like, nah, that's okay. We'll just sign Dwayne Dedman for you know two years and twelve million instead. And those guys even have value because they can. I mean, they're low level starters, but they can start on a team. And so if you if guys like that aren't getting paid. 
then it's going to be so hard for the players that are below them on the totem pole. We talked about that with the back-to-the-basket guys, but it's going to be true really throughout. I mean, you just the supply is ridiculous, and the supply has only grown so much because guys that used to be fours, like David West, are now fives. And guys that you know you would think are threes are now exclusively fours. Ruby Gay, I don't think, has played a single minute at the three for the Spurs this year. And even, you know, you would think that maybe those guys, you know, whether it's Dwayne Dedman or whoever it is, could be, you know, a backup five. Well, now you're using backup fours as backup fives like we talked about in Oklahoma City. And you're using backup threes as backup fours. And there aren't enough wing guys. And it's like it's all a cascading effect based on, you know, everybody around the league at every position. So we're about ready to to wrap this up. But what I wanted to end on is... Not in terms of something that we've already seen, but what are you going to be keeping your eye on for the next month or so? I don't know about necessarily a specific thing, but just there's a lot of jumble early on. I think it was the first year that there were no 7-0 and teams and no 0-7 teams. And which teams break away from the pack and which teams are the pack is, I think we're going to find that out pretty early because it does look like there may only be a couple of teams in each conference that really pull away. I want to keep an eye on what steps we see from the young teams, because I expect a lot of them to like the Sixers. I don't think this is going to be necessarily a great year for them in terms of wins and losses, but how are they developing? Are Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons getting a better chemistry? Are the young guys on Sacramento figuring anything out? Are the Lakers guys, you know, they had a fun game. We were recording this on Friday, a fun game on Thursday night against the Blazers that they ended up Mm -hmm. losing. But what are we seeing from them that we can take moving forward? Because the challenge with these young teams that are bad, you know, so we'll see if the Lakers end up there and they have a different incentive because of not having their pick and all that. But I always want to concern myself on the earlier part of the year because once we get to March, we might just be dealing with funhouse mirrors. And so watching them a little bit now and then probably towards the trade deadline to see where they are. But I want to I want to see what steps they're taking early on. How are they learning from the experiences, not only playing NBA basketball in the case of, you know, guys like Kuzman Ballish the first time, but also playing together? How are they reacting to that? Yeah, that's a similar thing that we talked about with the Sixers earlier. You know, these teams that have sort of young cores, it's important not just to evaluate what what each player is by himself, but how they work in groups. You know, Kuzma is playing really well for the Lakers so far. Uh, you know, Ball is doing, you know, all of the non-scoring things that people thought he would. He's grabbing a lot of rebounds. He's getting them out on the break and, you know, not necessarily quite as much uh, in half court making plays, but, you know, he's doing it uh, in other ways, obviously not shooting well so far. But I don't think we've seen necessarily Kuzma and Ball together flash a whole lot of chemistry uh, chemistry just yet. So you got to see if that kind of thing works, too. Or, you know, Porzingis is playing out of his mind for the Knicks, and Nilakina has been better than expected, but they haven't played all that much time together yet. You know, you got to see how the two of them look when they actually share the court. The last thing, and it ties in with the Knicks, is going to be, you talked about, you know, kind of how the teams are going to separate more at the top end, you know, like with the playoff picture. I want to see if there's a bifurcation at the bottom, because if it ends up being Dallas and Atlanta and Chicago and Sacramento, I mean, who knows what's going on with Phoenix? They've been playing like gangbusters since they fired Earl Watson. You know, like, is there going to be a separation? Is it going to be like four and four, or is it going to be 
more like eight teams together. And that has huge ramifications in the last year before lottery reform. And because while I haven't seen a ton of these guys yet, other than some youth tournaments and things like that, it looks like the top end of this draft is very strong. Yeah. And look, some of these teams are not necessarily in a position where they're going to be, you know, on multiple year tank jobs. Sacramento doesn't have their pick next season. If they're going to be super bad, this is the season for them to do it, especially because, you know, again, starting next year, the lottery odds get changed anyway. So, you know, which of the teams are better than the truly awful teams, I guess, is an interesting thing, like you said, to watch for, too. Thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can read his work wherever it's published. He does a great job and writes all over the place. And you can follow him. Best way to keep up with his work is to follow him on Twitter at jadubin5. That's J-A-D-U-B-I-N and then the number five. Really enjoyed talking with him about the season and where it's going. Going to keep kind of a broad scope for a little bit more in the season. I want to get a sense of where the big stories are before I get into some team-specific stuff. And also, you know, depending on the audience, sometimes those are a little bit narrower. But when I see a story, thankfully, I have enough people to talk to now where I can jump into that. So I'll do a mix kind of from here on out and then, of course, do draft stuff whenever I whenever I see fit. You can also, if you want to support the podcast, there are a lot of different ways that you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. You can subscribe, download every episode. Those things are still very important in the podcasting business. You can spread the word however you see fit, word of mouth. You can also use the internet, you know, Reddit, Twitter, whatever. Really do appreciate all of that. And there are people that just need to know about it and that, 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 you know, wouldn't otherwise. So really do always appreciate that. You can also check out CLNS Media has the has their own app and you can listen to this podcast and numerous other ones through that should you so choose. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad or indifferent, Danny LaRue NBA at gmail.com at Danny LaRue on Twitter. Email's better because it stays in my inbox and all that. And then the single best way that you can support this show is by checking out our sponsors. So for this episode, you can get a free shave set. If you go to harrys.com slash real GM, all you have to pay for shipping. Great product. I've been using it for a while now and truly love it. And then also DraftKings. So what you do with DraftKings is you go to DraftKings.com, then use the Real Jam promo code, and then you can, with the deposit, you can enter in some pretty awesome contests. And they have beginner and casual stuff for those of you who are so inclined and more advanced things for those of you who are so inclined with that. So you should definitely check that out as well. I will be back at some point, actually probably early this week if, if the schedule holds, but you should definitely check it out. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.